Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Lainey. Hey, it's Joanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. We are here. How are you? We are uh, almost recovered from the Golden Globes. <laughs> it's harder and harder every year because we're older and older every year. I mean, you're older and older. I'm just <laughs> staying the same age, obviously. Um, I was thinking about whether or not we needed to tie up any Golden Globe loose ends. I think it turned out to be a little bit surprising, which is a funny thing to say because the awards themselves weren't that surprising in that La La Land swept everything. But it felt like a less predictable night than they sometimes do. Agree? Disagree? Agreed. I mean, with the big one being, of course, who we talked about last week, Natalie Portman, it was a given. Everybody, everybody, even you, assumed that she would get up there. I did. And then Isabel Huppert. She was shut down. Shut down. I'm not sure it's going to matter. Like, I mean, I think that Isabel Huppert is going to make a run and a go at it. I mean, she has the credentials. She certainly has um, an argument in favor of, hey, listen, I am one of the most acclaimed artists in the world. Very few people can touch my resume, even Meryl Streep. And this is one of the best performances, if not the best performance of my career. But she's a lot of things going against her. Well, she doesn't have name recognition. Nope. The role itself is, a, is an interesting choice, right? Yes. Like it's got a lot of questionable stuff in it. Yeah. And most importantly, when you talk about making a run, when you talk about campaigning, what I expect to see from Natalie Portman in the next month or so are revealing interviews and rap videos, like the <laughs> full gamut of... I'm so endearing. Right. You know, on in the car on the way over here, there was a song on the radio, and I'm like, why is this on? It was like, this was the top 10 this week in 2003, which is such an odd thing to resurrect, but I bet you we will see the resurrection of that SNL video during her V from Vendetta, uh, V for Vendetta promotion. Yeah. Uh, everything Natalie Portman has in her arsenal is going to be oh, yeah. fired at us. I don't know what Isabelle Huppert has to fire at us in the same way, right? To be like, look, guys, here's me baking bread or testing vibrators. I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know what her endearing press is. It's going to be, I mean, as crass as this is to say, it's going to be age. I mean, I just said testing vibrators, so I don't know if you could be more <laughs> crass, but. <laughs> yes, it's going to be age. It's going to be, I am uh, an elder, an elder stateswoman in this business and you've not rewarded me. And it's going to be, it's going to be the appeal to rewarding somebody for their career, the longevity of her career. It'd be easier if she was American or British, It'd be easier if she was like a Helen Mirren type, but she, but she's French and French, right? She's uh, French and French. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. Like that platform that you just said is boring to me. And Natalie Portman, as we know, is boring to me. So there's boring and boring. And is that the window through which Emma Stone 
pops endearingly. I know that baby inside Natalie Portman is not boring to a lot of people. Yeah, it so. is. Well, like to us, it's boring, Duanna. But like, as you know, for some reason, anytime anyone gets pregnant, suddenly they become the most interesting person in the world. But I would Christ. argue we're totally off book here. First of all, I don't think babies are intrinsically boring. Lest I be accused of being in the closet, I have a baby who's not a baby at all anymore. I care, but she doesn't do the things. She does not trot out. Do you even know her first baby's name? Yes. It's Aleph. You it's didn't Hadjou? know that. Yes. D- is that how you pronounce it? Aleph or Aleph? Aleph. Is it Aleph? It's, it's the… I don't… I've never… I've only seen it spelled. I've never heard it. It is the Hebrew word. I've heard it uh, pronounced both ways. Mm. Uh, uh, it's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay. Uh, and I've heard the press uh, mispronounce it both ways. Put it that way. Okay. But you don't see photos all the time. He is not Prince George. <laughs> There's not a marketing push around her babies the way there are for some. I hear you. I know what you're talking about with the, you know, the motherhood industrial complex. But Natalie Portman isn't playing Jessica Alba here either. But you were the one who said, I think a few weeks ago, that she got up on that stage at the last Golden Globes when she was nominated and was like, oh, Benjamin, my husband, my lover or whoever, thank you for putting this baby inside of me. Do you remember that? Of course. I remember that. But it's not, I'm just saying it's not playing this time. The pregnancy does not appear to be playing the way maybe she hoped. Uh, you know, I'm But staunch- is that in the arsenal that you're just talking about? It could be, but I'm surprised that it hasn't been. I wonder, too, if this is a reaction to the ask her more on the red carpet uh, because, you know, you can see the physical effort of Ryan Seacrest and Juliana DePandy not saying, who are you wearing first? <laughs> Your insistence on referring to her as Juliana DePandy is one of my favorite things in life. Like, everybody out there, if you're listening, Juliana Rancic was formerly Juliana DePandy. And Duana refuses to call Juliana Rancic Juliana Rancic. It's always and forever Juliana DePandy, which is… <laughs> you know, I want to be clear. It's not entirely disrespect. <laughs> It's not entirely disrespect. In fact, it's not mostly disrespect. Somebody once said to me, uh, your name has so many vowels. It's like a mantra. I was like, wow, what a nice thing to say. And I kind of do like my vowel-heavy name. Juliana DePandy is a lyrical vowel-heavy name. I find Juliana Rancic somewhat harder to say. Nobody knows DePandy anymore. And here's Juliana. Juliana DePandy. Um, at least once every award show, Duanna will text me and be like, what did Juliana DePandy just say? And it'll take me a moment to realize she's talking about Rancic because I don't even remember what the DePandy is anymore. My apologies <laughs> to the DePandy-Rancic family. <laughs> Not really. Anyway, um, wow, we just got… We ran, our, our topics weren't even about the Golden Globes today, but we just… Um... I'm not sure that Natalie Portman's baby is playing the way that Natalie Portman's baby <laughs> expected it would play out. That's all I have to say. Now that we've personified Natalie Portman's baby. Well, it is a person. I, I know you don't… <laughs> That's the whole point of having a baby is that you're making a person. Um, last surprise, though, I think both of us were… because. This person is pretty beige to both of us, or was pretty beige to both of us, and then surprised us at the Globes, and that's Brie Larson. 
right? Yeah. We didn't really care about Brie Larson no. last year ever, not really. And then Brie Larson made a face. Yeah. If Brie Larson has had, you know, interesting quirks to her personality, they were real suppressed last year with a saintly mother role and with the Oscar campaign and so forth. And then when she had to hand the award to Casey Affleck, boom, there was a huge face because she was not having it. And because as somebody on Twitter pointed out to me, I'm sorry for not remembering your name, please yell at me and tell me who you were. She hugged each and every victim of sexual assault who was on stage at the Oscars during Lady Gaga's performance of Till It Happens to You last year. So not for nothing, Brie Larson put her money where her mouth is. And that makes you like her more? That makes me like her more. And what I also like is that it's not, you know, just gossip bitches who were looking for an expression to hang on to and make more of it than it was. Many people noticed Brie Larson was rather chilly. And somebody else pointed out to me that according to award show tradition, Brie Larson is going to be handing awards to the winner of that category for the entirety of award season. Whether or not that person, that winner, is Casey Affleck is to be determined. But if that is the case, we will be able to watch her reaction through the entirety of the season. Yeah, so the next one is going to be the SAG Awards. I'm curious to see if she's gotten the feedback, whether or not she readjusts or overcorrects because of the feedback, or if she's like, fuck it, this is just my reaction. I think, and that's when we gossip bitches will be coming in with the analysis and like watching her every eye flicker, every nostril flare, all of that. And she's an Oscar winner, so maybe she doesn't have to care. And can I say, Brie Larson, if for some reason you are listening here, like keep on keeping on. We're, we're into this. Good for you. All right. So the meat of our podcast today, we're starting with... <laughs> Wait, we didn't start yet? We're no. started. Um, but we... The- no, we, what we do is we have a list of topics we want to cover and we send it to each other back and forth all week until it, you know, becomes finalized. And at the top of this list was Johnny Depp. Right. We didn't think we were going to have a digression about the Globes, but I think it's interesting uh, and a sign of a flexible work style uh, <laughs> to find the things that maybe are more interesting than we realized. So. You sent me this Johnny Depp article. Yes. And typically, you're not that interested in Johnny Depp, except to say when we were texting back and forth during the, in the summer, when the divorce news was blazing all over the place. Um, I think you were, you and I were in agreement that he's a dick. Absolutely. And it's not to say I'm unaware of the larger implications of Johnny Depp, but he was never a touchstone the way there are some others. However, the facts about Johnny Depp can't be denied. He's been a huge box office star since, uh, what's, what was the breakthrough film? Was it Edward Scissorhands? I'm not sure if he was considered big box office with Edward Scissorhands, but he's obviously considered to be like, I don't know. I think we might even have to go all the way back to fucking 21 Jump Street. Sure. Uh, You know, the point is there's a long, huge career here, right? There are many, many productions we can list them off. And it's it's been a reliable moniker for uh, 30 plus years, which is where our story begins. 
let me put a pin in that for a minute and just to have a very brief recap of the situation. So he and Amber Heard late summer agree to a divorce settlement of $7 million. Then it goes back and forth. Lately, it's been he won't pay her because this, that, and the other. And she's like, will you fucking pay me? And they finally settled. He will pay her the $7 million minus $100,000 because he already donated that to her charities. Duanna's rolling her eyes now because, yes, he's a fucking scammer, asshole, bullshit, whatever. And because $100,000 is like you skipping out on the bill at Shake Shack. It is such a drop in the bucket for him. For him. Or is it? Because (laughs) I actually reported on Laney Gossip a few weeks ago that I had heard reports from sources that he was tight, like he was hard up for cash, that he was in arrears with his legal bills, that he hadn't paid Laura Wasser almost a million dollars. Laura Wasser, of course, the famous uh, Hollywood divorce lawyer who is currently uh, handling Angelina Jolie's side of that very uh, friendly and easy (laughs) divorce settlement. That's right. So even a few weeks ago, I had heard that he was having money troubles which could have been why he was holding up the settlement. But he settles with Amber late this week, Thursday night, Friday morning. And then late Friday night, January 13th, um, it is reported that he is suing his managers for $25 million. So just, it says here, he's suing his former business managers alleging gross misconduct, this is from Variety, that resulted in the actor losing tens of millions of dollars. Um, The managers are denying that uh, they, you know, they scammed him and are saying that the lawsuit is bullshit and the reason Johnny's out all this money is because of his, quote, profligate spending. So let me go back to that pin about the money, Duanna, because you know more about residuals and this and that than I do. So back in the 21 Jump Street days, he did what? I think five seasons? Back in those days, how much would he have been making from residuals because I always thought that the bulk of his money would have come from as soon as he started Pirates and Disney. That's really to me when his money explosion occurred. Uh yeah, sure. 21 Jump Street would have been fine. Obviously it's not the money that you would make today and unlike some shows, I don't think 21 Jump Street ever made it into really really wide syndication. Syndication. Okay. That's right. Um the rules are can be somewhat different now, but back in the day you needed Uh, 65 episodes of an hour-long show or 100 episodes of a half hour uh, in order to sell a show into syndication and then there has to be the appeal for it and so forth. Uh, I don't remember seeing 21 Jump Street, you know, stripped five times a week after Judge Judy. Okay. Uh, So that's not the, (laughs) that's not the huge money that it can be uh, for other shows, uh, for Seinfeld, for example. Yeah. Uh, then his movie roles, which, yeah, are a couple of million dollars, bink, 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 as we go up. The thing with Pirates of the Caribbean that you are alluding to is right. not only a huge movie with a huge budget, yeah. but the money, hilariously, is in the marketing, is in the merchandising, yeah. in the toys. This is the big joke with George Lucas, just to divert into a nerd pool uh, George Lucas retained the merchandising rights for the Star Wars franchise at a time when everybody was like, so what for? Mm-hmm. Cut to nine bajillion toys and sheets yeah. and everybody you've ever slept with once had Star Wars sheets as a child. Cut and to like every Jar Jar Binks little figurine sold with your Happy Meal. For the last yeah. 40 
years. Yeah. So merchandising is a big, big deal. Okay. Johnny Depp would have gotten a chunk of the Pirates of the Caribbean merchandising money or back end, which is sort of a part of the profits. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You're not wrong. That's a huge, huge amount of money. However, if as this uh, suit alleges, he had big debts already. Yeah. Uh, you are always fond of saying he owns an island. Uh, you know, I know he owns restaurants, which are money hemorrhagers and so forth. Yeah. That could have been filling a hole more than padding his pockets. Yeah. So all this to say, of course, he's an incredibly wealthy person. Yeah. But the profligate spending that they mention may not be so far-fetched or even so hard to see. I agree. And listen, I there's when I was thinking about this story and we were pre-discussing it last night, there are two things here. He would not be the first superstar or star or actor to have been swindled by a manager if this is, you know, if this is a management swindle. Um, so many other celebrities have had this happen to them. I think I'm, I was looking at, I was looking this up, uh, the other day and like, I guess that's why Robert De Niro has to keep making shitty movies. Robert De Niro supposedly lost like something in the neighborhood of like, well, this site is saying $88 million because, um, he was investing in all kinds of art and some middleman in the art world, like, scammed him, so supposedly. But other, like, Elton John also alleged due, um, due to mismanagement sued his management company. So there are many celebrities who have had managers who've allegedly mismanaged their money. Well, and let me just duck in here again because this is one of those things where a very boring topic becomes very interesting. The shell companies and sort of ways in which people who make lots of money in intermittent ways, as artists do, is done, is quite technical and boring. And they usually have loan out companies and they pay themselves on behalf of it. And you hear stories of artists who have to ask permission from their accountants to spend X amount of money. It's fairly complex. Most artists of varying levels have neither the interest nor the focus to really know what's going on with their money. Uh, enough that I would say it's a rarity if you find somebody who really completely knows where all their money is, what the forms are that they're signing, and when it's supposed to go to where. I know. it's fa- and That's what makes it fascinating. Like, you know, that you have all this money and so many parts of their lives are handed over to people. You know, an assistant helps them buy socks. Um, a manager helps them, whatever. I mean, they, when you get to that level of Johnny Depp, you cease to do anything for yourself. And you know, when you look at your own bank statement and you're kind of going, where did the money go? And you're like, this, this, well, what's that? 1125? Oh, that was bagels. And you just sort of move on, except that for them, they're going, what was that? $10,000? Oh, right. That was for the remodel of the pool house. Whatever. Yeah. It's all waved away. And I think it would be Maybe there's a story in this, but I think it would be very hard to be an accountant watching all this go down and watching the utter and complete disdain with which these people treat their millions and billions and yeah. not think, you're not going to notice this or that or whether or not we're filing taxes on your behalf at the appropriate times, which is another way that a lot of stars managers 
Right. Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes, Shannon Doherty. <laughs> yeah. Um, like all these people. Wesley Snipes went to jail for tax evasion because he was, I don't know, not taking care of his finances, not looking at the books. Someone else was looking at the books, not paying attention. It's Or maybe not deliberate, or maybe deliberately not paying the tax. Yeah, I mean, whatever. There's evasion and neglect, but uh, it is a real, it's a very funny thing because celebrities love to make money, but they don't necessarily want to address and handle it. And regardless of where you are in entertainment, you will find people who don't want to talk about these sticky, dry details and hand it over to other people to think about for them. Uh, so I have no problem believing all of the parties in this story that he thought everything was handled, that the management company was like, well, we tried to tell you that we were suddenly issuing ourselves a, you know, a management fee yeah. or whatever that they felt entitled to, that all kinds of things. There's also a lot of managers and agents and et cetera who feel like, you know, I stayed with you through your career at a certain point. I should reap the benefits mm-hmm. of your enormous success beyond my 10% of your 7% of the back end or whatever it is. So it's one of those things where I bet all of the story, all of the parties think they're telling the truth. Well, the management company has come out and released a very detailed statement itemizing the times where Johnny Depp was irresponsible with money, which I think is very interesting. But in terms of… Why are we not just reading that aloud? <laughs> it's really good. But to me… What's interesting, when we go back to work and image and management of career, does this work for or against Johnny Depp's reputation that he's created for himself? Now, on the one hand, I have always said, for a guy who thinks of himself as a Hollywood outsider, as this like, Wait, I know. what? Yeah. Who, when did he say that? He's always been like, I'm not, you know, I'm just the rock and roller. You know, I'm just this weird kid. All I want to do is play my guitar. And get and- off the movie screen. I'm so tired <laughs> exactly. of Exactly. I'm so tired of people pretending they don't want to be here. There are so many people who want to be here. If you don't want to be here, get off of the movie screen. Thank you. Yes, exactly. My, which is the point of what I've been telling people. Like, buy into this image of him where he doesn't care about being beautiful. He doesn't care to be, like, one of the people whose his name is in the lights. And yet, he owns a fucking island, again. Um, 42 cars is what is listed in, in a lot of the writing around this lawsuit. 42 cars, how many homes? He is a mogul. He's as Hollywood as it gets. So, does this feed into his self created image or does it not? Or does it work for him in the sense where he's like, I just wasn't one of those people who was like paying attention to my money. I was just living my life free. That's what I do. I just go out and create and I'm free. And this is what happened. People took advantage of me. You see the the two sort of interpretations that can be made here? Not only do I see them, I assumed you were going to go one step further and say, is this a resuscitation of his image of the poor, maligned, taken advantage of man? Yeah, uh, who's obviously not calculating and, tr- and tr- right. obviously that wife of his was trying to steal his money. Because he was just wrapped up in his art, you know? Like he was just, you know, playing guitar and in his garage band and so… Or even just a bit of a dummy, you know? There's so much affection for the, oh, I'm a bit of a dummy with money. Oh, let me help you do your homework, uh, cute boy. I feel like this speaks to that as well. It may well be a career resuscitation which not to say he needed the resuscitation necessarily, but if he needs the justification to keep working, 
to, you know, be up for an Oscar himself in five years' time. Right. To not be, oh, I'm just a rocker. At a certain point, you go, oh, well, if you hate it so much and you're so rich, then leave. Yeah. This can be the justification for yes. remaining in the game. Or, you know, taking on one of those movies that you call numbers movies. What is it you, would, you call those movies? <laughs> yeah, movies with the number in the title, right? That's right. So the next time if there's a Fast Furious 11 right. and Johnny Depp is in it and we ask the question, are you poor? His answer will be, Yeah, pity me. I have to do Pirates of the Caribbean 5. Yes. It actually comes out this year, Pirates of the Caribbean 5. And then if he does a Transformers, uh, one of those stupid-ass Michael Bay movies. Or, to your point, if he winds up in all of the Fantastic Beasts Mm -hmm. uh, spinoffs. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the paycheck. There it is. There it is. That's or the paycheck is the excuse for the role because sure. I don't buy for a minute that he doesn't want to be here. There you go. We've once again come back to the same conclusion, which is, fuck you, Johnny Depp. Fuck people who, <laughs> yeah, kind of. And, and you know, this is all without even getting into the idea that people who are profligate spenders and are in trouble, you know, what are they trying to do with the money dick in order to prove how important they are? You know, there are lots of people who have lots of money that you don't know about. So that's another conversation for another time. Okay, well, next on our list, an article that was just added to the list fresh this morning because it's a new, new, new quote. Zoe Saldana, right? Yeah, so the headline on the article, which the headlines are always clickbaity, as we know, says, Zoe Saldana believes Hollywood bullied Donald Trump. So that's going to get you some clicks. Yep. What did you think when you saw the headline before the article? I was like, oh God, what did you do? Because there have been in recent days a few celebrities who have been more conciliatory towards Donald Trump. (laughs) I'm laughing because yesterday at work we learned, to my horror, Paul Anka was performing at the inauguration, and I was Is he really? And then several hours later, we learned that Paul Anka had backed out of performing <laughs> at the inauguration. Okay. <laughs> so then we had a lot of fun imagining under what circumstances, what did Paul Anka think he was performing at? Yeah. Did he think he was performing at Obama's farewell ceremony? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so I love Zoe Saldana. I have loved Zoe Saldana since Crossroads. Uh, the intersection of Saldana and Britney Spears and Shonda Rhimes yeah. have loved it for years. I love her. I was a little disappointed at this headline. But of course, the headline is not really what the article says, right? She goes on to say an argument that is not unfamiliar to anybody who's been following any of this. She says, and I quote, We got cocky and became arrogant, and we also became bullies. Uh, she said uh, to the uh, Associated Press about Trump, we were trying to single out a man for all these things he was doing wrong, and that created empathy in a big group of people in America that felt bad for him and that are believing his promises. So, okay, the statement is much more nuanced and a little more understandable, in my opinion, than the headline. Still maybe surprising coming from somebody in Hollywood, uh, Do you find it easier to understand, first of all, once you hear it written out? Definitely. Um, As you said, the headline was clickbaity. When you actually read her comments, they are measured, pretty measured. She isn't saying, I love this man. 
She's saying we need to move forward or with that, healing. She's saying that the impression given by the supposed powerful juggernaut of the, wait for this term, Hollywood elite, made people who support Trump think that he was being bullied. So it is a much more rational take on the on that headline. Having said that, uh, as we love to talk about, yeah, the Hollywood liberal media elite, and I say that not mockingly, but it's now a, a catchphrase almost, do you think this will hurt her? And how many people do you actually think are going to read the comments behind the headline? Very few are going to read the comments behind the headline. Do I think it's going to hurt her? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I think there's going to be a reaction. I think there's going to be like, hey, Zoe, especially you, a woman of color who has spoken out for diversity and for women's rights and for equality, why are you seemingly defending a man who doesn't seem to believe in those qualities? Right. And, you know, there are much more sophisticated issues at play here of whether there are people who feel more like they need to ingratiate themselves, uh, need to appear less like they're making waves than others. Whether or not, because of Zoe Saldana's position in mid-level Hollywood, if we want to say that, she sort of has less liberty to say what she really thinks or has more of an obligation or thinks she has an obligation to appear conciliatory than your big name, big stars, right? The big story this week, of course, was Meryl Streep mm -hmm. and her speech at uh, her speech at the Golden Globes, her Lifetime Achievement speech, yep. utterly and completely uh, devoted to Donald Trump. And that's sort of, she's Meryl Streep, she can do what she wants. So then the contrast becomes, you had a, a counterexample. I had a counterexample. You know, it was, we have examples of three women who this week have made headlines for the Trump commentary. So yes, as you said, started with Meryl Streep and the resulting backlash. Absolutely. There was a lot of backlash. There were people who were like, shut up. I think even on, in one of the, on the front page of one of the Toronto newspapers was you hypocrite or whatever, Piers Morgan. What? What? Oh, oh God. I can't begin to talk about Piers Morgan as a hypocrite, but. Yes. So um, Piers Morgan went for her. Um, a lot of people came from her for her. A lot of people defended her. And then there was Nicole Kidman. So Nicole Kidman said, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't usually comment on politics. I'm issue-based. I comment on things I'm passionate about. So I just say, he's now elected. That's Trump. And we as a country need to support who's ever the president because that's what the country is based on. Whatever and however that happened, he's there and let's go. Let's go. I mean, for me, I'm very, very committed to women's issues. So there was some commentary on this. It wasn't as much as Merrill. Let's be clear here. It was not even close to how much controversy, commentary, whatever that Merrill generated. But then Nicole had to walk it back. So she walked it back later on when asked about the little bit of a backlash that she got. She said, I was just trying to stress, or sorry, I added the just. I was trying to stress that I believe in democracy and the American Constitution. It's that simple. I'm out of it now. That's what I said, and it's that simple. So the comparison, Zoe and Nicole, Nicole is elite. You know, if you called Zoe mid-level, then I think we can agree that Nicole Kidman is high level. Absolutely. Okay. Nicole Kidman is on the A-list. 
probably yeah. for life. She's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. Yes. She already has her next three years worth of roles lined up, right? She knows what she's doing through right. 2020. Nicole Kidman is going to be fine. Also, little tip, I consider myself a scholar of pop culture, did not know that she was born in Hawaii, has that dual American citizenship. So here we are catching up. Uh, so yeah, she comes from a place of speaking to democracy, speaking to patriotism. Again, almost stating facts more than anything else. Saying things like, I believe in democracy and yes. we have to get behind the president. Yes. Those are like third grade civics lessons in a way, right? Yeah. So it's not going to hurt her. Did she need to say them? Not really. There's nothing that really benefits her unless and this is something that you were alluding to earlier, unless she's speaking to a sort of a base we haven't necessarily thought she was appealing to before. Well, here's the thing about Nicole Kidman. Again, we're both in agreement that she's going to be fine. There are many reasons why she's going to be fine. One, all the things that you listed, her next three years is booked up. She is Hollywood elite. She's also going to be fine because she's the godmother of the children of Rupert Murdoch and Wendy Dang. <laughs> <laughs> she- she is so connected behind the scenes in very, very sophisticated, high-level ways. Like, this woman is protected. Um, part of the reason why, you know, she was able to quite safely run away from Tom Cruise is because she had such a mountain of support, a billionaire's support, um, in Rupert Murdoch. So that's number one. Number two... Here's where I might sort of ask people to consider where her statements were coming from in terms of being a little bit like, let's just move forward. He's the president. We got to keep working now. Is she's married to Keith Urban and they live in Nashville. That is definitely Republican country. Um, I mean, you, Duanna's making a gesture like, mm, yeah, but Nashville is a is if there's a liberal part of Tennessee, Nashville is it. Sure, but I can tell you that, you know, let's take, for example, the most recent Country Music Awards. I think it was the CMAs. You know the ones that were hosted by Carrie Underwood and Brad Paisley? Aren't they all hosted by Carrie <laughs> Underwood? <laughs> so it was not a pro-Democrat room. I mean, I have sources who work in Nashville. They are definitely more in line with our way of thinking but at the same time, they confirmed that night that it is primarily a state of mind that is as, as pretty much far away from New York City as, as it comes. And very few, if you notice, in the country music industry, very few people are willing to be like, Trump sucks and I voted for Hillary. Not even Taylor Swift would reveal <laughs> where she put her name beside. Right. And so maybe it's one of those places that is uh, culturally liberal while being a politically conservative. Uh, two offshoots here, and that is, sure, they live in Nashville, but let's be honest, they are the triple A list. They could live in Australia tomorrow or LA tomorrow and New York tomorrow, and we wouldn't bat an eye. They are, they almost transcend place. However, if this particular angle of conversation is interesting to you and the sort of 
Tennessee, Kentucky, that area, and you want to learn more about it, I read the most gorgeous book on the holidays called Hillbilly Elegy, yes. which you have heard discussed in the media a little bit. It is not related. It is totally an apolitical book. It's not related to politics or to Trump in any way, but it does. it's a portrait of a family that explains a bit of a mindset, not, of course, of everybody in that area, but of a one family growing up in what they call the Rust Belt area. And it is a fascinating read. They're more based in West Virginia and in Ohio, but still a really, really delicious read. Hillbilly Elegy. Back to the podcast. Yes. And Hillbilly Elegy really is, again, to go crass, I think the author himself used this word, is really understanding the redneck mindset. Yes? And um, I'm pretty sure I read an interview with the author, but, you know, let me look this up in a minute. But um, to your point about they're able to live anywhere, this is true. She's able to live anywhere. The reason they live in Nashville is for him, is for Keith Urban. And so I feel like not that this changes anything. Nicole Kidman's going to be fine. But this is primarily, I think, where those comments were coming from. There is definitely beyond her fan base and what she speaks to, a consideration for what they represent together as a couple and where they reside, who they have to speak to, whose dinner parties they go to, when they're in Nashville, all of that factors in. Plus, I'm not convinced Murdoch himself isn't sort of a Trumpian ally, as evidenced by or that whole Wendy Den connection, Maria wrote a great post on our site putting together um, the Wendy Den connections and how she's been quite close to Ivanka Trump, how she's advised Ivanka Trump, all the sort of introductions that she's made for Ivanka. Um, Wendy Deng is deeply immersed in that whole Trump world. And Wendy Deng has a very, very um, clear history with Nicole. And we have so many other topics to get to, but I think this is another place for us to go in show your work, uh, and that is sort of the hidden, often conservative money behind the Hollywood liberal media elite that Hell people yeah. love to talk about. Um, so, you know, watch old episodes of the newsroom and study up, and uh, and we'll get there. But in happier financial Hollywood news… Oh, can I just add one thing in there? And We'll maybe get to this another time. For example, those hidden connections, there was a reader who wrote to us a very articulate email exposing, or not exposing, but reminding us in relation to Natalie Portman that Natalie Portman went to school and was close friends with Jared Kushner, who is married to Ivanka Trump, who has been appointed to a senior White House position just this week. Jared was. He has, yes. yes. Not her. Yes. Um, hey, not sure if Natalie and Jared still text each other on the regular now, but Ivanka was at Natalie's wedding. The six degrees of politics connections are, are pretty easy to find. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, moving on. Now moving on. Number one at the box office this week. Again for the second week. Hidden figures. Two weeks in a row. And I think this second weekend, Hidden Figures is in to make more money than it did on its first weekend, I believe. Let me just double check that. Go ahead, Duanna. This is pretty uh, amazing and it's pretty rare. And here's the thing about Hidden Figures if you haven't seen it already. The story itself is winsome and exciting and, uh, and you know, it's really going to take you on a, on a sort of a happiness journey it's not necessarily revolutionary storytelling in terms of twists and turns, but what everybody agrees on is that it is so well done. The story is so well told, the acting is so satisfying, and the overall picture is so, dare I say, heartwarming that it is the kind of thing that makes you feel really, really happy to have seen and have watched uh, regardless of you know, whether it, like, spoiler, there's a happy ending. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, it's one of those pictures where everybody is happy to get to that happy ending. Uh, and I still feel, I still enjoy thinking about it, you know, after having watched it over yeah. a week ago. Yes? You feel the same? It lifts me. It was, I mean, we came out of that film soaring, happy, with so much to say, a little bit of anger. Kathleen had a lot of it because, you know, as she said, why the fuck didn't we know these people earlier? Well, and I actually just want to digress there. So the m halfway through the movie, I sort of stage whispered, we're all going to buy the book now, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody laughed and agreed. And there was a bookstore attached to the theater. And down we went and bought the book. And on the back of the book, it says that Margot Lee Shetterly, who wrote the book, lived in the same town as these women. That's why she told the story. Yeah. Because she knew them personally. Otherwise, this story would never have been told. So there are two notes here that I really want to note. And that is, A, you know, there are amazing stories that are not, continue not to be told. Just because you haven't heard it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. But second, if you are a writer, and we often hear from writers, we often hear from people who want to write novels or screenplays or whatever, please do not let somebody tell you that the story you have is too small, too specific. The small and specific stories are the ones that resonate. The stories about one particular person are the ones that matter. This story had a big, big backdrop, but it's still pinned on one individual who never made it into the history books, or did, but very much after the fact. So just keep that in mind when you're writing, that the small stories have big resonance. And the one individual worked with two other individuals who are profiled in this film, who made huge impacts together, and who led a team, an entire team of computers, essentially. That's what they were called. They were called... Colored computers. That's right. Um, meaning the women themselves were computers. They were doing the computing. Uh, and in fact, the book profiles a fourth woman uh, who I don't yet know whether her story was uh, was sort of amalgamated. It's Christine Darden, right? Or is it right. Christine it was, Darden? Uh, or it, is that her last name? Um, I know her first name is Christine. Christine, yeah? That's right. Yeah. Uh, who was amalgamated into the other three stories or was, you know, eliminated for, the, for time. But, uh, but the stories are small and the impact is big. And it is not just, of course, a number one movie at the box office. 
it's a number one movie headlined by black women, which is one of those things that if you listen to them, full finger quotes, is one of the things that doesn't open a movie. That's right. And But in fact, on its second weekend, it will make at least $24 million. The first weekend was $22 million. Remember, it just eked out uh, Rogue One. That's right. And when it did eke out Rogue One, Duanna sent me an all-caps text saying, it beat Rogue One. Um, and, you know, with the asterisk that this weekend is uh, a four-day Martin Luther uh, King Jr. holiday weekend. So maybe that accounts for its bump from its first opening weekend gross. But the point is, two weekends in a row, Hidden Figures dominates the box office ahead of people like, um, oh, just a guy called Ben Affleck. You know, just him. He directed a movie. The last movie he directed won an Oscar. Um, (laughs) Duanna's like, I don't give a shit. Oh, well. (laughs) But to your point about telling new stories and specific stories and stories that haven't been told, this is why increasingly, and we have written about it together along with Sarah on the blog, that movies like The Revenant made no impact on us because I know that story of the white guy who goes in the wilderness and gets revenge or self-discovery and fights a bear or a lion or Chews off his own arm, whatever. (laughs) Whatever. Or how many times has that story been told? I feel like we get one every year. I'm going to get really real here. Sometimes uh, women or people of color or younger people say, I'd love to tell this story. And somebody who's a high up says to them, well, those stories don't sell. And often what they're saying is those stories don't sell to me. Uh, that the people who are buying are often the people who are making the movies that you feel you've seen a million times that don't resonate with you. Yeah. Keep pushing because there is an audience who is ready for the thing that you are saying that nobody has said before. Case in point. Well, before we do that, I just want to make one last note about Hidden Figures. And that is what we talked about in terms of storytelling and what you can tell and how you can show. Because this story, Hidden Figures, was about math and people doing math, which is not typically cinematic. You know, it is not easy. You're, you're a screenwriter. This is, you know, a, a thing that you have to confront all the time. How you show writing. That's or right. How show, you show don't math tell is a big, big deal. That's right. And so much of this movie is based on people who sat at a desk writing down numbers or sat or stood on a ladder in front of a chalkboard writing down numbers. This is not usually interesting filmmaking, and we can all understand that. Visually, it's not that exciting. And somehow, they fucking pulled it off. Well, they pulled it off because you care deeply about the characters, and you know why you care about them, because they have real clear goals and clear sort of hurdles to get over. And if you have a winsome character, if you have a winsome actress, this is belying what I said about Taraji P. Henson on this podcast, you know, six or seven weeks ago, that she was not sort of meek and mild enough to play an Olivia Pope. Mm -hmm. She has proven me wrong. This is going to open up that character and a whole bunch more roles for her. And that's only exciting that... There are ways to tell that story if you believe your character that fully. If you know who they are and what they inhabit, then you can get away with having them do math on screen and have them look at 
charts up in the air in a way that somehow seems exciting. And on that note about telling the stories that aren't being told or daring to go where you're told that no one will care, typically on sitcoms, situation comedies, you're not supposed to get political. And there was a show this week that got very political. It's not the only show, but it's the show that everybody was talking about in this week, which is what we're addressing, because Fresh Off the Boat has been doing this as well. But blackish. So one of the things that is so interesting about this to me is that uh, a weekly television show in particular and a network show is a giant beast that uh, Shonda Rhimes always talks about how every eight days for an hour-long show, they are eating up the track and you have to be laying the track and have more uh, content scripts. I love that analogy. Whatever. Yeah. You can see it. You can see it. That's how it feels. It's always coming for you and you have to keep doing it and laying out uh, stories. She did that in Year of Yes, right? That's That's right. That's how she described it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so most showrunners, especially on a show like Blackish, which has a season order of probably 22 episodes, don't quote me, I'll look, uh, have as many episodes as they can laid out way in front of them. You know, the episode about the SATs or the episode about buying the luxury car Mm -hmm. with a silly uh, vanity plate Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, those can be anywhere and can be ready in advance. My question is whether showrunner Kenya Barris was anticipating Mm -hmm. this Trump win and knew in the back of his mind that he might spend Thanksgiving weekend (gasps) turning this script around. Uh, to have it ready for production. Because no matter how good the idea is, when you are six to eight days before production, the props guys got to shop props and the wardrobe people got to do that and the director has to prep the way they're going to shoot. You have to have material for them. So whether he turned this around in a fit of inspiration or whether he had sort of an inkling that this was going to go this way weeks or months ago and was planning for it, that's really interesting to me. Well, I think that I'm not I'm not sure that he was expecting a Trump win. But for our purposes, what we talked about after this episode, of course, you and I, is we were fixated on having hit, like that Thanksgiving weekend for him where he has revealed, I think it was the article in Variety that you sent to me, he revealed to Variety where he was like, yeah, I, as you said, locked myself away. I wrote it. Thanksgiving weekend, he directed the episode as well, and he said that the network had no concerns about the content, they only had concerns about the turnaround time. Because, and you you tell me, Duanna, that's end of November, they would have had to shoot it in December, and then go into post in December, or maybe go into post first week of January, and then air it just this past week. It aired, what's uh, the 11th, January 11th. So that's what, six weeks? Right. It's tight, but possible. Depending on the show that you're talking about, shows often have relatively tight turnarounds. Uh, but it's the, the, the scheduling in terms of throwing out the other episode that had been in the works and wedging this one in and getting everybody ready and into the right state of mind or whatever else they might have needed. Maybe they want somebody especially skilled to cut it, so they have to make sure that person's schedule is free. It's tricky for sure. 
it is a mark of huge confidence on the part of the network that they cleared the path for him to do it. Yes. This is the same network, of course, that gives an open path for Shonda Rhimes to do incredibly demonstrative things like have an abortion live on camera. This is a supportive network. This is a really interesting relationship. It is. And from an interesting network, ABC is also, as you said, Shonda's shows. ABC is blackish. ABC is fresh off the boat. That's right. Um, And as I said, Fresh Off the Boat has also been doing a lot of political work. Um, They've been telling stories about the immigrant. Um, And so, you know, to go back to Blackish, as you said, he said, and Kenya Barris is not the type to, as we've read from him before, he's not the type to, if the network hadn't been as accommodating, to pretend that it was. I don't see him as that person. Do you? Absolutely not. And here's Kenya Barris uh, being really straightforward about the process. And I want you to listen for something uh, that I want to discuss after the fact. This is him discussing in Vulture the actual process. It was very, very difficult. I had to immediately write. I asked a director if he could switch his slot because I wanted to direct it. Our post team had to work like crazy. We were writing over Thanksgiving, editing over Christmas. We knew we wanted to do it but it was definitely the quickest we ever produced an episode. Mm -hmm. Now, what I want to call your attention to is how many times I appears in that sentence and we. He acknowledges two things. This was my idea. I wanted this. I wanted to direct it. He is being open about his skill level and that he's the person to do this. And at the same time, we were writing over Christmas. We were editing or pardon me, we were writing over Thanksgiving. Yes. We were editing over Christmas. Uh-huh. It is also about the team. He in the same, this is the epitome of show your work. He did something important by saying, I am the one to tell this story. I want to do this outlandish thing. And we as a team had to work together to make it happen. This is fairly unusual and pretty incredible. Yep. It's unusual, it's incredible, and the reason it appeals to people like us is because it is, I want to see the work. Oftentimes in show business, for a long time it was, we don't let you behind the curtain. Right. We don't tell you all the nuts and bolts. I keep, I think I've said nuts and bolts in every episode of our show, but (laughs) we don't show you the nuts and bolts. You are supposed to just see the final product And we are supposed to know what went into going into the final product. And those two don't meet very often. But more and more, as showrunners become personalities of their own, and it's been about just over a decade that the word showrunner has entered our pop culture lexicon in the terms of like, not just people who work in the business know what the word is, but just people who enjoy you know, on a very casual basis, what a showrunner is, or uh, sorry, what a show is, knowing what that title means. And I think, like, for example, I don't think Aaron Spelling, to go back to showrunners, marquee showrunners of a certain period, would have been laying out for us step by step the work that had to go into putting a show together. No, Beyond what was salacious, what would help the scandal. Oh, absolutely, because that's not, writers were just you know, they were just the worker bees because it was all about the stars. But it's going both ways. Not only 
our showrunners becoming celebrities and bringing you behind the curtains. But now, as opposed to a generation ago, all those stars want to write and direct. That's why there's being such a meshing. That's why Donald Glover, who is the star of Atlanta, was also the writer and the director of that show. And so in meshing those worlds, in seeing the attractiveness of being behind the curtain and not just being a celebrity, it is creating a two-way mirror or some better analogy than that uh, for people to go backwards and forwards showing the work and also getting some of the glamour and glory attached to it. I really also like you know, what we have now in this era of um, entertainment consumption that the showrunners, the writers, they're walking you through not only the process, but during your watching experience, they're giving you sort of like the Coles notes or, you know, at the back of a book, there's, you know, a questionnaire and it's a discussion guideline. Who's the showrunner or the head writer for The Affair? Sarah Treem. And so she does the same thing, no, on Twitter? Absolutely. That's right. Says things like, this argument was born out of a discussion in the room over whether you ever really know your spouse's worst flaws or et cetera. I'm paraphrasing there. Yeah. And this is why, if you want a little pull back the curtain, this is why you and I decided that the concept of a recap online a day or two days later of a television episode is, has a different flavor now than it would have five or ten years ago because when the showrunner is right there engaging with the fans, everything else that, uh, that a commenter or a critic says later is somewhat supplementary because the discussion is there to be had in real time. That's right. Which and is only amazing. This is where we are now. You're watching The Affair. You're watching Blackish. You're watching these shows and you have the showrunner saying, hey, in this conversation, make note of, and these are the things that you're thinking about. This is how a relationship is pulled apart, come together. Um, these are how people who are deeply troubled speak to each other. No, their words are not going to line up because when do real words line up when two people are angry? And, and we're running deeply long here, but I want to say that participation from those showrunners is fascinating and exciting, and Chanda Rhyme says it too, as long as they don't start telling the audience how to watch the episode. Where it breaks down is when showrunners or creators of any kind say, no, you got it wrong, mm -hmm. you watched it wrong, you didn't understand. Right. And that is where it falls apart because once it's out of your hands, out of your pen, out of your edit suite, out of your whatever, it's no longer under your control. That's why they work so hard. That's why they stress so much to get it right because once it's out there, mm -hmm. it's not for them anymore or not it's not theirs anymore. It belongs to all of us who view it, which is amazingly democratic. Which, to go back to Blackish, is one of the strengths of that particular episode. I don't know if I agree with every decision that was made in that episode. I think that that was the point, though, as I texted to you after. The point was, I need to think about it. I need to debate it. I need to at least consider it. But it didn't Sort of, it didn't align to my political and social point of view exactly. But that's okay because if yes. it did, it wouldn't have stayed with you this long. He didn't pander. Right. I don't think he pandered. And so, write to us, tell us what you think, how that episode affected you, whether you're still thinking about it, whether you made people sit down with you and watch it that they wouldn't have otherwise. I want to hear about whether or not an episode of network television 
in this day and age can affect you uh, and whether that is considered revolutionary because we've sort of, sometimes we think we've gone beyond that particular medium. Or start watching it. It is accessible. It is funny. It's funny. It's hysterical. Um, It's fashion. The fashion on the show is amazing and it hits you. And it's almost a throwback to sitcoms of 30 years ago in that it is the water cooler conversation. Yes. uh, Sitcoms were important places for conversation once upon a time. Speaking of unlikely places for conversation. Well, um, finally, our last subject is something I would never have expected to come from Duanna. Duanna sent me a text, um, I think it was Wednesday, January 11th. And I had to look twice because Duanna was texting me about, I don't think someone we've ever talked about outside the context of uh, her children's names. Um, Victoria Beckham. You wanted to add Victoria Beckham onto the podcast list after um, a letter she wrote to her old self in British Vogue, right? Right. So the letter itself as you pointed out, is a little bit old. It was published, I believe, on January 4th. Uh, And so the fact that it's a little old is kind of amazing to me because I don't know why it didn't make kind of bigger noise. This is, if you haven't read it, kind of super charming. It is just a letter saying, you know, these are the things that are going to happen. Trust yourself. Don't lie about the boob job. Uh, (laughs) You know, Learn to wear jeans with sneakers instead of heels. It's charming. It's funny. There is no doubt in my mind, and this is the weird part, that it was written by Victoria Beckham herself. There's no indication to me that there was a ghostwriter or anything of the kind. Do you agree? I agree. I agree because, as you said, it's charming and we know she's charming. I mean, when we've seen this sort of behind-the-scenes footage of her, I know I've probably seen more than you because, again… I, think I don't you may know be, that Victoria Beckham is you may on be top painting of your list. me with a with a strange <laughs> brush because I could care less about uh, professional footballers. Yes, <laughs> I think what you're getting here is that I don't care about David Beckham, and in that you are absolutely correct. But she was uh, Spice Girl, my arguably my favorite Spice Girl, or my second favorite, as well as the one who never got to sing ever. Um, <laughs> Nobody wanted her to sing. Can we just put that out there? But she had an insecurity <laughs> complex about this. Uh, and so this brings me back to one of my favorite sort of headlines that uh, we've discussed on this podcast early on, which is, do you care? Does this make you care more about Victoria Beckham than you did a week ago? And for me, I say yes, asterisk, because while I'm charmed by this and really like it, I don't know that it's going to open the door to more writing, more of her sort of candor, but I wish it did. I remember an interview years ago where somebody asked her, you know, don't, maybe it was Barbara Walters, don't you ever like cheat and have dessert? And she just very honestly said, never. It was just a, you know, no, I don't allow myself that. And that was around the time of narrative of, She's really got to keep him. She's got to hang on to old Bex and, you know, she might, he might be wandering. Uh, I find her candor interesting. I wish we got more of it than we do in her day-to-day fashion work. Do you care? I've always cared. What I loved about this letter is that she is so honest about 
her fixation on her appearance. I mean, the insecurity is up front and everywhere. You know, she's telling her old former self, don't worry so much about your weight. You know, that weight will melt away. Then, like, a little bit later on, she's like, um, you know, you'll go to Soul Cycle so that you can take care of your weight. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Like, it is very plainly obvious to me that she, what she's sharing here is that there is a significant amount of self-loathing. She has gone through and still struggles with looking in the mirror and being like, I'm not good enough. Um, and not in a way that is so, is like the way that others pretend to do it as a way to relate to you. It's just there with her. She just can't, she can't get away from it. And I mean, that is probably very universal and also very reinforced, you know, in an imposter syndrome kind of way, mm -hmm. right? That only people who are given so much praise for being beautiful and fashionable and whatever, not only people, but often people who are being celebrated for the way that they look, sort of have this grand imposter syndrome of not, you know, of that insecurity. But what's interesting about that is that it implies she doesn't have insecurities about other things. And I noticed there's no implication of her thinking she wasn't that smart, of her thinking that she wasn't that articulate. There's no indication of, don't worry, you'll feel smarter or you'll get people to listen to you or et cetera. She wasn't worried about that. She isn't worried about that. No, she's never doubted her intelligence. But that is somewhat rare for somebody in her position. That's not always yeah. what we hear. Did you pick up on the, I mean, this is gossipy, but did you pick up on the section where when she talks about living in Spain? Yeah, it was hard. There were rumors. Yeah. And that was the time when there was that woman, Rebecca Luce. Right. Who had allegedly, but, you know, um, allegedly the affair with him. And that was the time. And she also puts that right out there. You know, she, in this letter, she was like, you will move to Spain and it's going to be hard and all these things will happen, and people will say terrible, mean things to you, and it will be this and that. And it wasn't so much uh, the media was so mean. It was, it was a hard time that you had to live through, that you will live through, my old self. That, and it was, I wouldn't say it was a confirmation of the wandering, as the word, which is the word that you used about him, but I would say that she didn't have to say that. There was enough in the letter that made it interesting. She chose to include that in this letter, this hard time in Spain. I find that, I find that really interesting. Well, you know, I… Uh, and I, that's another point why she wasn't a ghostwriter. That's right. Right? It, it was not being policed or sanitized. Uh, and, you know, that's an interesting thing about couples who are both in the public eye, what they choose to reveal or not about their lives. Um, I also found myself wondering whether or not this is useful, this letter to one's former self. Uh, I would like to receive the letter from my future self uh, that tells me how it's all going to go down, but I'm not sure I hate it either. I, so in the answer to do you care, I also feel that I've always cared, but I care more. And I, if she decides that she's going to write a series of Leanne Moriarty style, you know, gossipy novels. I am super here for them. Okay. Well, before we wrap up, just a couple of fact check items. Uh, I believe Johnny Depp left 
21 Jump Street, not after the fifth season, but the fourth. At least that's what IMDb is telling me. Thank you for clarifying. And in terms of Hillbilly Elegy, uh, he does use the word in redneck in his book. Um, I'm speaking of the author J.D. Vance, but he uses it as a way of saying that Americans call them hillbillies, rednecks, or white trash. I call them neighbors, friends, and family. Absolutely. And such an engaging read. I really recommend it. And Hidden Figures. Go see it. And buy it. Read it. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us. There you go. You have homework. Show your work. See you next week. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.